continue in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, We will uh, read verses 11 through 41. Uh, As you know, we frequently stand when we read God's Word together. Uh, We stood earlier for Old Testament reading. Uh, This is sort of just long enough that we will uh, remain seated. Uh, Hear God's Word, Acts 19, beginning in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said... Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she from she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him uh, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. They're proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this, your word. Uh, use it in our hearts and lives to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was uh, growing up, we had um, this little white dog. Um, I would now probably embarrass, be, be embarrassed to actually call it a dog. Uh, but it was a dog. It was a little small, white. The opposite of what we have now. Small enough that she frequently slept on the top of the back sofa cushion in the playroom. The sofa that just didn't matter and who cares. And um, she could also look out the window and see who was coming and going. Uh, she was born in June. She was white, flat-coated. No idea what she was. Um, she had curly-coated siblings. She's flat, smooth-coated. Uh, white, born in June, and so her name was Pearl. Uh, this is the birthstone, the June stone. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever heard my mother use the word mutt. She has all her life. Anytime anybody asks, so what kind of dog is Pearl? Her answer was always the same. Frequently the short form. It was not, she's a mutt. She's a mixed breed. It was frequently, it was, it was always, she's a Heinz 57. Usually shortened, she's a Heinz. My mom had decided that Heinz was sufficient to communicate that, you know, like the Heinz 57, which really doesn't have 57 random ingredients. I mean, it's just a made up number. The guy just chose a number out of thin air. Um, but thought that with a number like 57, that that would sell. And you're, you're supposed to think that there are 57 secret ingredients in Heinz 57 that make it this delicious sauce. I think Pearl had uh, who knows what in her. She was a mix of this and that and probably some other things also. You know, the truth is, much of what passes for biblical Christianity today is more like Heinz 57 Christianity. It's, it's a fair amount of Jesus, a fair amount of Bible, and, and some amount of biblical Christianity, but a little of this and a little of that sprinkled in just for good measure. And our passage this morning warns against what we might call Heinz 57 Christianity. Paul was... God's instrument for carrying out these miracles of, of healing and, and exorcism. Not only could he heal 
uh, those who were sick, but he could also cast out demons. Um, and in fact, it got it, it was such a, a big deal that even like um, perhaps he's tent making and and the the washcloths or the the handkerchief he would use to wipe the sweat from his brow as he's working with leather. Uh, those claws, those aprons, those, those random sort of cloths that he had used throughout the day could be taken to the local hospital and used to heal those who were battling sickness and disease. Imagine the demand for that in coronavirus 2020. But don't miss the language of verse 11. God was doing extraordinary work. Not Paul. Think of the people who wanted to give the credit and the honor and the glory to Paul. That's kind of what was going on in his world. They're looking at Paul going, how are you doing this? What's your magic formula? What's your secret? What's your special sauce? What's your secret ingredient? We've got to learn. We want to understand how we can use this too. And it's not Paul. It's God. We need to recognize, first of all, that this really is not normative. This is not intended to be a pattern for the rest of Christianity, for all, all eternity, for all times, all places, all people. Uh, these miracles served a purpose at a special time, a peculiar time in the life of the New Testament church. And wasn't, they're not supposed to be uh, repeated uh, everywhere for all time in all places. But even those places today that claim such healing powers frequently take the credit for themselves. But verse 11 is clear. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You know, I couldn't help but notice this past week Two different stories going around social media. And I'm pretty sure one was one day right after the other. Uh, on one day, there was this big, massive faith healing church out in California that decided to cancel their faith healing trip to the hospital because they were afraid of getting sick. <laughs> the very next day, Kenneth Copeland was healing people if they could get up and touch their televisions then he was healing them through the magic power of tv you know the truth is a day like today a day like this we wish that could be true we would love to have these rags these aprons these pieces of cloth that we could take to italy and to Washington, and to New York, and to Florida, and to the places being flooded with coronavirus, and say, here, just pass this washcloth around. It'll make it go away. But we aren't given that promise. We aren't given that guarantee. These miracles were intended to verify and to validate the ministry of the apostles and the gospel that they were proclaiming, especially as they were doing so in new places with new people. But imagine. How much would those cloths go for on eBay? 
Imagine being the guy that could hoard them, find them, gather them, and then rent them. The marketability of that kind of healing in coronavirus world. That's Paul's world. There were people who saw this as an opportunity to get on the bandwagon, to get on the train, to to make money, to get some honor and glory and credit for themselves, to follow Paul's lead. That's exactly what happens here in Ephesus. Look at verse 13. There are these itinerant Jewish exorcists. They're traveling snake oil salesmen who decided that they would take the name of the Lord Jesus and use that name over evil spirits. See, their pattern was to travel to new places um, and and to cast out demons uh, or to claim to um, probably a little bit of both. Uh, and they would take the the name of the local god of the day and use that name in that place. As Jewish exorcists, they're sort of limited in their ability to use the word the name Yahweh uh, or even Jehovah. Uh, even even today, there's seminary professors around the globe who will. I urge you not to say Yahweh, that the name's too holy. Instead, choose uh, Jehovah, the, the name that God revealed himself uh, to Moses in Exodus 3 when he said, I am or I will be. But that's okay. They didn't need that name because they're in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there is this massive temple, a, a football uh, field and a half long, massive columns. Um, a temple to Artemis or Diana, uh, in as some uh, languages called her. In this temple was the um, the local bank, the the central bank. This temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. But they found somebody even better than Artemis. <clears throat> Because Paul is healing people in the name of Jesus. And they said, said, we want some of this. Let's use that name. And so they did. Paul's getting the honor. Paul's getting the glory. Luke, writing after the fact, corrects it. It's not Paul's glory. It's God's glory. But these... Professor Harold Hill types wanted it for themselves. And so they were in town planning to uh, heal some people, to cast out some demons, make some money, and move on to uh, the next place they needed to go. And these seven sons of Sceva are participating uh, with these itinerant exorcists. But you notice what they're doing. They're trying to sprinkle a little Jesus into what they already were doing and thinking and believing and acting out. Thinking that I can continue as I am if I just shake a little Jesus on top of it. Like sprinkling salt on your eggs or your grits. If I can just 
mix a little Jesus in here, then uh, I will be fine. And so that was their plan. The place was known for magic. It was known for magic arts. There were um, writings in Ephesus there in the temple known as the Ephesian writings that um, had been kind of recorded into books and used as magic spells. It was known for uh, magic arts uh, of this sort. But don't be too quick to disdain these exorcists. Have you ever thought about the way we might mix a little Jesus into our lives in ways that makes us feel like, makes us feel better about ourselves, which really raises questions about even our Christianity? You ever sort of finish a prayer with a sort of tacked on real fast in Jesus' name, amen? Like, that's the magic. Yes, Jesus is our access to the Father. Nobody's saying you don't have access to the Father through Christ. But we, we add it as though, well, this is the magic formula that will get me everything I just asked for. Rather than an admission, a recognition that He's our only hope of access to the Father. Or even the way we treat prayer like a desperate measure. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And what we mean by that is I've tried everything else within my power and I, now I'm at the end of my rope, so I might as well try a desperate measure. You know, pray. Perhaps we think that that's... Well, if I just if I'll do that, then that'll make everything go right. It'll make everything fixed. It'll make everything okay. But if we wanted to show a life dependent on Christ and His glory and grace, we would start with prayer, not end with it. Not save it until all else fails. Or evangelism that urges people to try Jesus rather than repent and believe. What Jesus calls us to do and to believe frequently interferes with our lives. And when we say, well, hold on, that's a little too far. I'd really rather do these other things as long as I can just sprinkle a little Jesus into my life and not submit to an actual king and ruler. Then that would be a whole lot better. He calls us to gather together on the Lord's Day. He calls us to a life of service to Him. And when His rule asks us to give something up, we hesitate. Just think of the ways we use Jesus more like a good luck charm than a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, a prophet, priest, and king. And that's what these exorcists were doing. They thought they could just make Jesus a good luck charm and cast out demons in His name because that seemed to be the name that was working these days. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes Scripture is written in ways that should make you laugh. There are actual passages in the Bible 
in which God actually mocks. Now, to us, that sounds sort of mean. But he actually mocks foreign gods. Go read the ten plagues in Exodus. There's darkness. Where's the sun god of Egypt? Go read uh, 1 Kings 18 and the prophets of Baal. When Elijah's sitting over there eating popcorn, going, scream a little louder, wake your God up. He's probably taking a nap. Popping bonbons. While God is mocking the prophets of Baal or Baal himself. Look what happens in verses 15 and 16. These exorcists thought they had the right magic hocus-pocus incantation. I adjure you by the name of, uh, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And look what happens. The evil spirit goes, let's see. Jesus, yeah, I know that one. Paul, yeah, I recognize him too. But I got no idea who you people are. They used the name Jesus. They used the name Paul. And it got them nothing. So much so that the one man with the evil spirit overpowered all of them, beat them up, tore, ripped them to shreds such that their only hope was to run out of the house beaten, battered, bruised, bloodied, and naked. You've got to understand, this passage is written to say... You can sprinkle Jesus on a false religion and it's still a false religion. And God will not be mocked. And these men run out of this house with absolutely no hope whatsoever. And notice what happens as a result, verses 17 to 20. You know, we at Grace Covenant, we want to be uh, about proclaiming the gospel for the whole gospel for the whole person throughout the whole city to the whole world. Uh, what we mean by that is we want um, the gospel proclaimed not just a get out of hell free card, uh, but that the gospel actually affects the way we live our lives. It affects how we shop, uh, where we shop, how we student, how we teach, how we vote, how we serve in office, once being voted in, it affects everything that we do. And when that happens at, with every individual believer, then that affects throughout the whole city. It affects the way Athens is known around Alabama and around the globe and the way this city operates and functions. We want the gospel to be for our justification and for our sanctification as well. When the falseness of these exorcists was exposed, it had an impact on the Christians in Ephesus. They started repenting. They started changing. They realized, you know what? I've been, I've been in this case, sprinkling magic into my Christianity. And that's not right. Such that they started repenting, confessing their sin, even bringing their magic, their book of magic spells into the the center of the city to be burned and destroyed. 
even they had been practicing some form of magic and they were convicted of their sin, of their distrust in God, of their lack of submission to Christ as King and Ruler. So that when God thwarted the the evil schemes of the evil one, His own people were cut to the core and began to repent and confess and turn from their evil practices. Their conduct had been unfitting, inappropriate for Christians, for believers. See, for the the Ephesians, it was a question of Jesus versus the occult. Will we have Jesus only or will we have Jesus plus? Or will we have magic plus Jesus? Or will we add a little Jesus and stir Him into the things we already believe and do and live and call that good? The Ephesians actually experienced a a revival. A true work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. And according to verse 20, the word of the Lord grew. It increased and prevailed mightily. The problem is there was um, a local workers union in Ephesus, the Utah. We'll call it the Utah. The Ephesus United Temple Artisan Workers. Local union there. Silversmiths, Demetrius seems to be the president, the chairman of the committee, whatever. And he gathers all his fellow workers, perhaps even competitors, actually, uh, because they could unite together over this one issue. Uh, They made statues, little silver statues of Artemis and sold them in the temple. Visitors would come. They would worship there in the temple, worship Diana, Artemis. Um, and uh, then as they left, they could stop in the gift shop and buy one of um, Demetrius's silver statues and take it home and have that at home to worship. He got nervous because this is how he made his money. This is how he put food on the table. This was his livelihood. And if everyone gets converted and actually submits to the rule of Christ in their lives, then they're not going to have any use for Diana statues in their home and you and I are going to have trouble eating. They were afraid that there were so many converts to Christianity. No longer would the magic arts rule. No longer would people have Jesus plus magic or magic plus Jesus or Jesus plus idolatry or idolatry. And so Demetrius gathered his people together and and ultimately incited a riot. um, So much so that the people there had no idea why they were rioting even to begin with. They just kind of got caught up in the mob and and didn't know what was going on and just shouted and almost, almost like thousands of people sticking their fingers in their ears. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And all they just shout and yell for two hours. But notice what he says. His complaint. His complaint is 
that gods made by hands aren't gods. That Paul is telling people that gods made with hands, verse 26, aren't gods at all. Wouldn't logic tell you that? I mean, this is the point of Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, Isaiah writes, you know, let me get this straight. You go outside with your axe, you chop down a tree. You chop the tree into a bunch of little small parts. Most of those parts you throw in the fireplace and use to heat your home and to cook your food. You save a part or two and you carve an idol. Then you set it on the table and worship it. But you made it. It should worship you. Logic tells you. Kids should know that I don't make something and then set it on the table and worship it. I'm its creator. I am by definition greater than it is. You know, people around us have idols. We all have idols. As Calvin wrote, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Gods that we worship. Gods of our own creation. That consume our time. That consume our money. We will fork over whatever amount of money we have because it serves the purpose of of worshiping this idol. And we will give extra time to it because it is the thing we worship that consumes us. It doesn't have to be a statue. It might be any number of things. Athletic ability, stunning good looks, sex, pleasure, vacation. Any number of things. You know, the thing about idols is for all of their inanimacy, lack of life, life, inanimacy, is that a word? They won't let go. It takes the sovereign grace of God to free us from their grip. And that's what we see modeled for us here in Ephesus. Religious people committed to false religion. Religious people trying to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus into what they already believed. Religious people who thought they could serve Jesus and sprinkle a little worldly religion into their Christianity who come to uh, repent and they're confronted with their sin and they repent and confess and turn from it. In other words, this passage warns against Heinz 57 Christianity. We're called to follow Christ and Him alone. Not to follow Christ and the world. Or to follow the world and sprinkle a little Jesus in it and make it all better. We frequently think like Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. A spoonful of Jesus makes whatever we do acceptable in the eyes of God. Are we going to come to repent of our sin, repent of our idolatry, repent of our laziness, repent of the things we try to add to Jesus so that we can really 
ultimately serve ourselves. See, the picture is Jesus won't share His honor and His glory with another. Jesus won't share His honor and glory with false gods. He proves His power and authority over false religions. And He alone is worthy of our praise and of our lives. You know, maybe... Maybe one thing this COVID-19 thing does is it reveals to us our, our love for ease or our love for comfort or our love for security and, and perhaps even routine and going through normal everyday life the way we normally do. And perhaps this disruption will help to challenge our idols and turn our hearts to Him. Are you trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation? Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never turned in faith to Christ. Perhaps you're thinking that if I can just sprinkle enough Jesus, do enough Jesus stuff to what I'm already doing, living my own life the way I'm living it now, that'll be sufficient. Christ calls us to repent, to turn from our sin and turn to Him, to follow Christ wholeheartedly. May He grant us the grace to do that this morning. Let's pray together. We pray, our great God and our King, that You would rule in our hearts and that You would reign over us, that we would seek to wholeheartedly, perfectly, completely serve and honor and glorify Christ and Him alone, that we wouldn't feed our idols, that we wouldn't um, fuel our Uh, our own self-worship. Would You bring us to repentance that we would turn from our sin to follow and serve and love You. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.